So a while back I was um, in a conversation with um, uh, someone and I mentioned to them that I was going to be doing these four sermons on identity, sort of setting up this renewal series. And they said, oh, well, if you're speaking on identity, you should read, and then I'm always alert to that, you should read, and they said, um, the Wingfeather series by Peterson. And I said, huh, I've, I've never heard of it. And they go, oh, yeah, no, it's about identity. It's really, it's really good. And I said, okay. Wow, I've read a lot about identity in the last couple of years. I haven't heard anything about this. And so I wrote it down. And then later, uh, I, I bumped into one of my, my boys, and I said, uh, hey, have you read the Wingfeather series uh, by Peterson? And he said, yeah, I read it a, a while ago. I said, really? And he says, yeah. And I, I said, was it good? He goes, yeah, it was okay. And I said, well, is it on identity? And he goes, yeah, it's sort of on identity. And I said, is it a Christian book? And he goes, uh, yeah, but not, you know, not out front. And I said, oh, okay, well, so I ordered the, the book. It was a series. I ordered the series. And it turns out it's young adult fiction. Uh, it's a fantasy series. You know, dragons and talking lizards and these three siblings who are chased by the fangs of Dang, who've come from the dark other side of the dark sea of darkness. And I mean, nothing at all like what I was expecting it to be. I thought it was, you know, a, a nonfiction adult series. I, I, didn't, I don't know what I thought it was. But uh, look, if you're 12 years old and, and uh, you're thinking about reading the Wing, Wingfeather series, I'm not going to give anything away here. I, I didn't read it all. I read part of it. Um, and uh, yeah, there's some stuff on identity. I'm not sure it's the you know, one of the first hundred books I'd recommend that you read if you're 12, but, um, but it does sort of set up some thinking about identity. However, uh, I'm not going to be talking about the fangs of Dang today. Uh, we're back uh, at the back end of the Bible moving forward. So this whole series is about renewal, and so getting started, we're trying to remind ourselves who we are. So we're, if we're trying to get back to the new, who are we and how do we think about that? And uh, so to that end, I've been talking about identity, and, and I've said I, our identity is very important. How we think about ourselves shapes how we live and how we treat others. And I've said it's um, confusing. Our identity it can be a little bit complicated. Part it always is because we have so many different roles and we got to figure out how to order them. Rightly order our loves, Augustine. Rightly order our understandings of, of what roles or functions we're playing. Uh, it's also complicated because our, our society is uniquely confused at this moment on issues of identity. Um, and then I went on and, and said, um, you know, if we go to the Bible, uh, we find right out of the gate in Genesis chapter 1, that the first thing, the first of four big things, and that's sort of my, my opening premise for this uh, renewal series, is that there are four big ideas that need to shape your understanding of who you are. And Genesis chapter 1 sets up the idea that you and I, we are creatures made in the image of God, and as such we are highly valued. 
So we, we come at sort of the pinnacle of the God's creative activity, and, and we are highly valued. Number two out of Genesis 3, um, though we are highly valued, we are also deeply fallen. We are, we are profoundly impacted by sin and evil, and it has scrambled our relationship with God, and it has jumbled everything. So today, we're looking at the third of the third of the four uh, big ideas, and that is that we are eternity shaped. So, highly valued, deeply fallen, eternity shaped. Uh, I am making the case here that uh, we live after we die. And um, there's an everlasting aspect to who you are that you cannot afford to ever forget about. So, my opening salvo here is that you need to understand that before you think of yourself as young or old, rich or poor, before you think of yourself as a as a teacher uh, or as a business owner or as a student, uh, that before your mood is impacted by uh, your latest performance review or your cholesterol numbers or your golf handicap, before any of those things shape how you think about yourself, you need to be profoundly gripped and molded by, by the four big things that God says are true of you. And uh, these four concepts, highly valued, deeply fallen, number three this week, eternity shaped, change everything. So today I am arguing that you have to think, we have to think about eternity because eternity does change everything. If what you see is all you get, like if if what we find when we look around, the, the material world is all that there is, if there is no transcendent God, if there is no transcendent truth, if there's no non-material reality, if you're simply the stimulus response machine or the naked ape or the carbon-based biped or whatever it is, the, the, you know, the highest primate, the highest mammal, if, if that's all there is, if there is, no, if there is no heaven, if there is no judgment, if there is no hell, if none of those things are true, then uh, wow, you should live in light of that. Because uh, that should shape how you think about everything. Now, I, 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 don't, I don't know what path you want to take if, if that's what you believe. Seems to me like you have just a few options if you're going to be at all consistent with that belief. One would be hedonism. Two would be nihilism. Third would be, I think, just depression. Um, and of those three, by the way, I recommend hedonism. Uh, I mean, hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. It doesn't work long term. The Greeks figured that out, but uh, it works in the short term, and I'm not sure what else uh, you've got to think about. So um, if what you see is all you get, you ought to live one way. But if, (laughs) if you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, if you believe that the Bible is true, if you believe that, that there is a God and his promises are binding, then you need to live in light of forever. To do anything other than that is the, the epitome of foolishness. We have to understand 
that uh, life is a three-act play. This is act one, and it's very short. And act two is judgment, and it's coming. And act three uh, goes on forever and ever. So, uh, in the, the, the first two weeks of this series, we were in the first few chapters of Genesis. So, the very beginning of the Bible. Today, we're jumping to the last two chapters of the Bible. So, we go from Genesis 1 and 3 to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And uh, we're, we pick up sort of partway through uh, the description that John, the apostle, is giving of heaven. So John is the last living apostle. He had been young compared to the other disciples. They've all died. They've all, Judas ended his life. The other ten, we believe, are martyred. Uh, so John has been persecuted. He's, they've actually tried to put him to death. Somehow he's, he's uh, survived. He's been banished, though, to an island uh, in the Aegean Sea. And, uh, and then one day during his devotional practices, prayer time, he's called up into heaven and he sees all these things. He's told to write it down. And the first part of the book of Revelation is these seven letters that, that uh, John will write, uh, well, that Jesus gives and John sort of transcribes to the seven churches. We looked at that um, a year or two ago. Now we pick up, uh, as we're sort of moving on, uh, all the things that have happened. Now we get to the very end and we get some descriptions. We're sort of jumping all the way back. Um, we're jumping all the way back to the garden and we've got descriptions of, of heaven and it sort of ties together as bookends of what's going on. And at the beginning of this, what we have is John's description of heaven and and it's we're picking up part way through it but it sort of doesn't make perfect sense to us uh the 12 gates so there's a fence uh i think symbolic but there's a big fence around heaven suggests security and uh heaven gets described as this perfect cube and other things in revelation 21 but in this fence uh, in the wall, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. Now, uh, again, I think John is up against it here, and he's up against it because what he's seeing, we don't have words to describe. And so what we're getting here is symbolic, and so you've got um, gates made of precious pearls. Uh, you've got the street, something, you know, streets are made of mud or asphalt or concrete, very ordinary, very mundane, very cheap things. In this case, they're, they're made of gold uh, as pure as transparent glass. And, and gold, of course, is not transparent, but glass at the time was, was a luxury item that not many people had, and so you're sort of combining these two luxury things, and he's trying to describe this. Now, Jonathan Edwards, great architect of the Great Awakening, um, brilliant uh, theologian, Edwards wrote an entire sermon uh, on this word here, as. Uh, now, in his translation, it was the word like, and it said, uh, the great streets of the city of, of gold like, um, excuse me, the great street of the city was of gold uh, as pure as transparent glass. 
and it's just like transparent glass, and it's like, it, the, the idea of like, he was saying is, look, I'm asking you, we're being asked to compare and contrast things, we're being asked to imagine things, and he makes the point, Edward makes this point by preaching this whole message on the word uh, like, he makes the point that uh, we are expected to use our imagination to think about heaven. So I'm making five points today. Uh, I, I made one, eternity changes everything, so we need, to, we need to live in light of eternity. The second point that I'm making is that we should understand that, um, that uh, we are to think about heaven. We are to use our imagination. We are to direct our thoughts into thinking about heaven. Edwards, by the way, did. We know from his journals and the margins of his Bible and, uh, and sermons that he wrote, uh, things that he would scribble in the, in the margins or on the back of the pages, we see him writing down thoughts about heaven that he is thinking about, that he is meditating on because he thinks in order to live uh, in this broken world, we need to be pulled forward by an understanding that we are eternal and that we're going to live in heaven. Moving on. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So Jesus gets described in heaven as a lamb, the lamb that was slain. The gospel is still great news in heaven and, and people are reveling in it. And Jesus, of course, is the God-man. He's the intersection of God and, and man. Uh, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. The lamb is its lamp. So, uh, so there's no darkness in heaven, nothing that, you know, nothing that is less than amazingly lit up and brilliant, and that suggests you know, openness and transparency and, and wonder and awe. And, but there's no sun uh, and there's no moon reflecting the sun. The light is just coming from the brilliance or the radiance or the glory of Jesus sort of fills the place uh, up. The nations will walk by its light and kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. So suggesting that everything good uh, is in heaven. Everything of value is you know, carried forward. The, the, the treasures of the kingdoms uh, are brought up into heaven. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. So again, this idea of security and, and openness and wonder and, and brilliance. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then, now we go to chapter 22, the last chapter. Then the angel showed me the river of wa the water of life as clear as crystal. Everything's pure. Everything's clean. Uh, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, this everlasting water and, and uh, life. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Again, we hearken back to the last chapter. We're going back to the first cha last chapter of Revelation, going back to the first chapter of Genesis. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the uh, healing of the nations. You know, 
five or six years ago, I, I realized I sort of uh, uh, changed my thinking a little bit about heaven uh, from heaven being some other place to really, I think, heaven sort of comes down to earth in a sense. The earth is remade. The, the, the heavens that are here sort of heals the land. It's remade. We get a perfect earth without any sin. Romans 8 talks about the fact that all of creation is affected and is groaning uh, under the weight of sin, but there's no sin now. The world is perfect. Uh, it works perfectly. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or of the light of the sun. Again, Jesus is filling this. The Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So, um, look, as I noted, I, I want to make five points. The first one is that eternity changes everything. The second one um, is, that, um, is that we need to be imagining and thinking about heaven. So the first point I'm making is that we need to shine our headlights beyond the grave. We need to live today in light of the fact that we are going to live forever. We need to see this life as act one that is very brief and it's part of a three-act play. We need to stop thinking that what we see is all there is or that every good thing that is supposed to happen to us is supposed to happen now. There's nothing in the Bible that promises that and much that promises <laughs> sort of the opposite. The first thing, eternity changes everything. The second point is that heaven is better than we can imagine. John's description of heaven is interesting, fascinating, worth studying and reflecting on. But it is certainly uh, hard for us to make sense of it all. And, and usually when you find writers using symbolism, when you find writers using hyperbole, it's because what they're trying to describe is better, or in some cases worse, than the words they have available. Point number three, we need to imagine heaven. You need to think about heaven. We must set our minds on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. We need to start focusing on the fact that what is coming is better. I think it's one of the only ways we survive with a level of joy and peace. We need to stop, start focusing on the idea that heaven is better than the broken world we're living in. The, the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is not some secret code book that we're to study to try and find the hidden meaning so we know exactly when Jesus is going to return. The book of Revelation was written to people who were suffering and who were about to head into more suffering, and it was to tell them 
to look ahead and that, that God was in control and that while it might get bad, that, that this ends well. And it's to give them a glimpse of the glory of Christ in heaven and to say, you're headed in that direction. You are headed to the great banquet. Hang in there. That is why the book of Revelation was written. As I said, Jonathan Edwards went out of his way to write himself notes <laughs> to, to remind himself to be thinking about eternity and heaven, to raise his sights, to stop being bogged down. I'm in uh, a lot of conversations in which people are um, just saying like, oh my goodness, it's so bad and everything is going wrong and COVID and the debt and my rights and, and the sky is falling and the oppression of the state and oh my, oh my, oh my, uh, what is happening? The sky is falling, people are dying, everything is out of control, it's never been this bad. <laughs> I want to say, uh, Stop it. Listen to what you're saying. And, and read the book. And raise your sights. And, and, and sort of level set what is going on. This is not who you are. Yes, sin is running amok. Yes, we are deeply falling, fallen and living in a deeply fallen world. So get out there and be about making it a better world for other people. Yes, there are lots of things going wrong, but God has everything under control. He told us things would be going wrong. He values you, and death is not the end. Men and women, death has no ultimate power over you. Jesus Christ conquered death. The resurrection blew the doors off of the grave. You will, in Christ, live forever. That changes everything. And it needs to be an ongoing, prevailing thought that you never let drift far from your conscience. You will live after you die. You were shaped and destined for eternity. Death is nothing more than a brief transition from the land of the dying to the land of the living. This is the land of the dying. Did a funeral this week. That's one of the things that I, I always say. You may be thinking that so-and-so has left this land of the living to go to the land of the dying. No! That's exactly backwards. This is the land of the dying. We get to go to the land of the living. And that's, what, that's how Paul talked about it. He said, you know, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I'm hard-pressed. I don't know which to choose. What I want to do is die because that means going to be with Christ, and that's better. <laughs> However, Paul says, there's still work to be done. So I will stick around for your sake. <clears throat> because to stick around means I have an opportunity to tell more people about Christ, to have an opportunity to use the gifts and abilities and opportunities Christ has given me to do things that bring him glory and honor. But he says... If I had my choice, I would choose to die. We are not promised an easy life. We are not promised an easy life on this side of the grave. What he has promised us is a great eternity. 
And what he has called us to do now is to serve. Right now, your focus should be on the needs of others. In this world, it's to invest the opportunities, the gifts, the time, the talent, the resources that you have to advance the kingdom of God today. It's not to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust decay and thieves break in and steal. It's to store up treasures in heaven. It's to store up treasures for act two, judgment, and act three, eternity. And we need to live in light of that. Eternity changes everything. Heaven is greater than we can imagine. We are instructed to imagine. We are instructed to think about heaven. Point number four. If and only if we do this, are we of any earthly good? If and only if we are living in light of eternity, are we of any earthly good? I, I make this point because there's a knock against Christians that we are not of any earthly good because we're so heavenly minded. Karl Marx you know, makes this point. Uh, religion is the opiate of the, of the people, uh, of the masses. And, and he's not against all religion, let's be clear. What he's against is heaven. <laughs> and he, what he's really against is the way the rich are using heaven to sort of uh, keep the poor in their place, saying, okay, in this life you might not have what you want, but you know, if you obey and if you stay in your place, then you'll have a great eternity. And so Marx is against that, uh, which we should be against that. Uh, and there's other people. There's sort of a growing number right now run across uh, environmentalists who are against the idea of heaven because they say, all these people think that, you know, we can trash this planet because this isn't our home. Ultimately, we're just passing through. So I sort of get their frustration on that. And then, of course, you've got uh, others. John Lennon famously singing, imagine there's no heaven. Uh, it's easy if you try. And then he, he describes utopia. Uh, so there's a lot of people that say Christians are not of any earthly good because they're too heavenly minded. Um, I have to say... Um, I wish that were true. I, I don't find today many Christians that are too heavenly minded. I find most Christians not thinking about heaven at all. Like most Christians spending a lot more time thinking about the next vacation than they're spending thinking about their eternity. It is imperative that we recognize that it's only when we are living as we have been called to do with casting our mind to heaven thinking about uh, heaven and eternity and, and the way this ends and where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, it's only then that we're sort of freed up to be who we've been called to be. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. Um, I've used it before, but it just is so good. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who made uh, the most difference in the present world were just those who thought the most about the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. 
In his book, uh, The Rise of Christianity, uh, historian Rodney Stark writes uh, about uh, the reason the, that the Christian faith grew so dynamically in uh, a hundred-year period in the first couple centuries. So by the time we get to Constantine in, in the, uh, the third, beginning of the fourth century, but, third century, by the time we get to Constantine, uh, Christianity has grown to almost, we think, perhaps 50% of the population. From eight, it's just, it's just, it's growing like a fire, right? I mean, it's just a, a brush fire. It's going in every direction. And, and Starks tries to explain how this could happen, and he ties it back to two plagues. Uh, so there's a plague in uh, 165 AD, and there's a plague in two, uh, 251. Both of these plagues, uh, tragically, he suggests, lasted 15 years. I really hope that uh, our pandemic does not stick around for 15 years. But uh, not even sure what these plagues were. Some say it's uh, smallpox, some say it's the measles, maybe different things. But what we know is that um, in some cases, uh, in the cities, <clears throat> lots of people would die, 25% of the population. This is not the later plagues that are the black plague, bubonic plague, uh, where some of the times the death would go as high as 70% in a village. So it looks like more 25%. But in Rome, in, this, uh, in 251, in that plague, in Rome, 5,000 people are dying a day. It's a city of a million. 5,000 people are dying a day. So, uh, you know, 35,000 people are dying a week. It's, it's a big number. And while the people don't understand exactly what's going on, they don't, have, uh, they don't have our science, they don't have our understanding of viruses and other things, they know that you can get sick if you're around people who are sick. So as soon as this, something like this would hit town, all the rich would flee. And most of the doctors would flee. And many times, if you got sick, your family would flee. Because they don't know how to stop it. So um, we read about this plague in uh, 251 by a Roman doctor named Galen. And uh, Galen fled, uh, but we have his journals that tell us uh, about what was going on. And um, he notes that there are these Christians who don't flee. And, and, and that they not only don't flee their family members, they take in other people who are sick. And he says, many of them, the, the Christians, many of them get sick themselves and die. But they nurse many back to health. And so Stark goes in and he looks at this. And he, he builds some mathematical models, I'm guessing, and sort of says, okay, so if you cared for somebody, there's a 50% chance that they'll get better. If you, if you abandon them, then uh, likelihood is they're going to die. But if you care for them, they get better. And so he says, okay, so the Christians are taking care of other Christians, and so lots of Christians are, are living where lots of pagans are not. But then when you take in the pagans and you care for them, and a lot of them live, he says thousands and thousands of, uh, of non-Christians who are being cared for by the Christians come to faith. And he says, this is... Uh, this is how Christianity sort of grows so exponentially uh, relative to the rest of the population. But, but this is the key. So Stark says, look, 
what the Christians did was not courageous. What the Christians did was not unexpected. What the Christians did only made sense. And here's the line. For Galen to remain in Rome to treat the afflicted would have required bravery far beyond that which was needed by the Christians to do the same thing. Why? Because Galen thought that this life was all there is. But the Christians thought, no, when I die, I go to be with Jesus. When I die, I leave the land of the dying and I go to the land of the living. When I die, I go to heaven. And that's better. And that shaped them to live very different lives. The gospel gave ordinary people a reason to stay because they were living in light of eternity and living very, and you live very differently if you do so. Men and women, I want to say, in the words of John Newton, the, the slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace, he comes to faith, you know, repents, becomes a pastor, becomes an evangelist. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. This changes your identity. This must change the way you think about yourself. This must change the way you think. You are highly valued. You are deeply fallen. You are eternity shaped. This is who you are. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory one final point that I'm going to make. So, Highly valued, deeply fought. Those are, those, are those are my four points. You've got to come back next week for point number four. The five points I'm making today is that uh, we, um, we are, uh, eternity changes everything. Uh, number two is that uh, heaven is better than we can imagine. Number three is we're supposed to imagine it. Uh, number four is that we need, to, um, we need to live today in light of eternity. Number five is that there are no ordinary people. So in The Weight of Glory, which is this remarkable sermon that C.S. Lewis preached, uh, you can get it online, it's also a book, but uh, he writes this, he says, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter, like what it will be like for us in heaven, who we are in heaven. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to one day may be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as if you now met, if at all, only in a nightmare. So what he's saying is, you know, cultures, countries, they're not eternal. Your neighbor is eternal. You are eternal. We need to live in light of the fact that people are highly valued, deeply fallen, and eternity shaped. So uh, I've, I've given you a lot to think about today, uh, but I want you to find great hope if you're in Christ, you live forever. Death has no hold on you. It is a temporary transition. Right? Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus defeated death. In heaven, Jesus will completely destroy death. There will be no more death. You do not have to worry about death. We are to be, today, living in light of the call on our life to invest it now in the kingdom of God. 
That is who you are. May, may these big ideas shape your identity. Heavenly Father, guide, equip, prepare us, shape us. May we not be shaped by net worth and golf handicap and our age and uh, our cholesterol. May we not be shaped by culture. May we not be shaped by crazy ideas. May we not be shaped by, uh, by marketing campaigns. May we not be shaped by uh, uh, the, the commercialization of this life. May we be shaped by the things that you say are true about us and prevailing about us. We were made by you in your image. We are fallen and sinful. We are shaped for eternity. Uh, May those three big ideas and the fourth to come shape us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.